welcome to the Mile 99 interview series with your hosts, Greg Larkin, Mike Turner, and Jessica Harris. Enjoy this episode, and we'll hope to see you on the trails soon. Welcome, everybody, to another uh, episode of the Mile 99 interview series. It's our 19th episode tonight. We had one last night. We had to bring somebody back in tonight. We're focused on 200 milers this week, and we uh, have another person that we want to talk to tonight. His name is Dan Barger. And, you know, as we've um, been doing these episodes every every week since May or every couple of weeks, we, st- we sit down, we talk to a different ultra runner from our community and just find out what they've been up to this summer, what kinds of interesting races or challenges or other types of things they've been doing and just dig in, see what they're all about, see what makes them tick and usually hear some incredible stories, get some inspirational advice and all kinds of other um, great tips. So tonight uh, we're gonna have another one on for you. And first though, I want to uh, just welcome and uh, introduce my co-hosts, Jessica Harris and Mike Turner. How are you doing, Jessica? I'm good, getting used to this cold weather running. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and I understand you found a little furry friend tonight, so. Did. I'm going to go back in the morning, and if he's still there, he might be coming home with me. I found him in a field. <laughs> yeah, a little kitty out there. You got you to gotta, you gotta see what he's up to, for sure. Yep. Mike, how are you doing? Doing you good. From still, still recovering. I'm not taking a week off or two after Javelina. Enjoying not running for a short period of time. Absolutely. It's a great time of year to do that. So uh, like like Greg was saying, you know, we started this series back in May when, you know, to kind of keep our community connected, uh, you know, to, you know, talking to people and be motivated, hearing their great stories, sharing their stories. And it just just inspires us all to to dig deeper and to take bigger challenges. And also the tips that we learn from people o- over the months have just been invaluable learning the things that we've learned Uh Jessica is here and she's keeping track of the various chat rooms. We have one here in Zoom. You can post a comment or question in Zoom. Also, Facebook Live at the Aid Station and our page, we are, uh, you can put questions there as well. So at the end, we will get into a QA. and uh, We want to mention a couple of folks that are friends of ours at the Aid Station in Auburn. Uh, they're good friends of ours. I want to give them a shout out and Great place to hang out. In fact, tonight they have their Thirsty Thursday run, which is has been popular. So go there for a beer, some shoes, some great conversations. And uh, other friends of ours uh, are the Monsters of Massage. And Greg and I go there a lot. They, they're just a great local um, massage folks in Newcastle. If you have any injuries, I mean, they can get anything out. So uh, great folks. Greg? Thanks, Mike. Yeah, absolutely. Get down there to Monsters. They're working on me uh, every week now for a few more weeks, I think. <laughs> Get some plantar fascia I just worked out. So tonight, our guest, as I mentioned, is Dan Barger. He's a long-term, uh, I'm sorry, long-time ultra runner from Auburn, and he has hundreds of ultra finishes under his belt. Uh, many of them are wins, top finishes. He's also the proud holder of the 1,000-mile Western States buckle. He's done it over 10 times. He has been a mountain bike racer, a triathlete, an adventure racer. 
and he has a first winter ascent on the Yoakum Ridge on Mount Hood. So this guy can do it all. Um, just amazing. His latest achievement, uh, and something that we're going to be spending a lot of time talking about tonight, is a new fastest known time. And it actually is more termed an only known time, an OKT versus an FKT, on the Western States 200 route. And this route is an out and back starting from Auburn, heading all the way back to Olympic Valley to the start line of the Western States Endurance Run, and then back to Auburn following the Western States 100 trail, including the river crossings. And he set a blazing benchmark time in two days and 11 hours and 48 minutes on this incredible 200 mile journey. And like I said, only known time. We don't know of anyone else that has done this yet. So he is the first and he is truly an accomplished endurance athlete. So let's bring him in right now and find out all about it. Hi, Welcome to the show, Dan. Thanks Thank a lot for joining us. Thanks for having me. Hey, Dan. Good to see you. Howdy, howdy. Thanks, Dan. Hi. So feeling pretty good after the uh, the run? Yes. Got a little bit of sleep uh, banked back in, and um, yeah, I feel pretty good. Yeah. It's been almost two weeks now. So hopefully, it's a little bit of recovery time. Uh, and, you know, as we were talking to um, our, another guest last night, Bruce, and he uh, he actually just did the Moab 240, and he was just talking about just the fact that with these 200-mile endurance events, you have a lot more time. Of course, in an FKT situation, you're pushing for time. You want to go fast. Can you initially just describe a little bit about how an FKT attempt at that distance might be different than a 200 mile race where you don't have necessarily that time pressure if you're not going for the win. Um, yeah, well, that particular, you know, I did a little bit of research and, and worked with Peter Backwin at uh, FKT and um, determined that no one had done it. A lot of people had talked about it, um, Dean Carnassus and a couple of others over the years that wanted to uh, incorporate it into the Western States run. They wanted to either run up and then run the Western States back down, or uh, they wanted to um, go up, uh, no, run the race down and then try and come back up. Mm. Um, but none of it ended up materializing. So um, we did uh, determine that that no one had done it and talked to some other friends, Katra and uh, Bill Finkbeiner and bunch of people, um, Craig Thornley and so on, and just to determine if anybody had done it. Um, and the answer was no. So um, it's, it's, it's good and bad, I guess, is one is you just got to get through it. And yeah, you've got the first known time. Um, but at the same time, uh, there's no one out there either. Uh, so it's not a race, even though, you know, you've got a time that you're shooting for. Um, I think in the longer races, a lot of times the, um, that you know, times are are relative to the day and and so on. So it's it's not like running a flat, you know, 10k or a marathon where you can you know compare them all together. So mm. yeah, completely different type of effort. It sounds yeah. like. Before we kind of back up to some of the questions, I wanted to ask you about your kind of early running. Um, just one thing. Um, 
did you have a specific time you were shooting for on this effort? I, I was hoping to get in under 60 hours because that's um, the two, you know, finish the 30 hours is the finish time. So times ah. two would be 60. So um, I was hoping, I know I can go faster. I know that much. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I don't know if I'm going to try again or not, but um, I know that I can go faster on this, on this course. Um, but yeah, that's how, that's how I was, I was shooting for 55 to 60 hours. Yeah. And you made it. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. Great. Well, I did want to start a little bit back kind of in your earlier days. Uh, you grew up around San Jose is my understanding. Yep. Almaden Valley, right up against uh, the hills there where Quicksilver takes place. Quicksilver nice. 100K. And you started running in high school. And one of the things I was wondering was, did you take advantage of those hills kind of right off the bat when you were in high school and doing track and, and all of that? Or, or was trail running like at that time, just not something that people were, were aware of or doing? No, people were doing it. Um, and um, I think I think it was known pretty well. Um, a smaller group, obviously, than now. Um, our My cross-country coach, um, uh, Wayne Meyer, uh, who lives actually over in um, nearby, actually, um, not in Auburn, but uh, close by, he um, uh, would take us up into the hills like once or twice a, a, a week. So we were running you know, up in the hills doing fartleks and hill repeats and different things with the whole group of, we had a pretty good size cross country team. Um, and it was probably 35, 40 people, guys and gals. So. Hmm, very cool. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, it's a great place to train, right? You've got built-in hills. You can do your hill repeats. Um, you have to work on agility, I'm, I'm assuming, and all that good stuff. And it's got to pay off some benefits uh, when you get into just regular cross-country races or, or whatever. Yeah, typically, I mean, I, I started running in 19, I think it was 81. So I was about 15. And and uh, my parents had a, a saddlery shop. So uh, uh, feed and tack and hay and grain and that type of thing. And we did endurance riding. So that as soon as I started running, I worked in ride and tie, which is two runners and one horse alternating running and riding. And of course, all of this is on the dirt and in the hills. So um and their shop, which I worked at, over, um, you know, after school and so on, was right at the bottom of Quicksilver Park, right there on Mockingbird. So, um, yeah, it was a great, great spot to grow up, and and lots of good running, and then we were always training the horses. And yeah, my mom and I actually ended up riding Tevis, uh, which is how I first uh, found out about Western States. Um, we rode the Tevis Cup Endurance Ride in 1981 as well. Mm. She she was a uh, if you're under 18, you have to have a sponsor. So oh. mom, mom and I went and did it. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. We talked to Bob Crowley uh, mm -hmm. a few, couple of weeks ago and, and he kind of filled us in on that whole idea of the ride and tie being really like the genesis of a lot of the trail runners in this area. Yep. And uh, did you know him at the time back then? Or? No, not at the time. Yeah. No. But it sounds like a lot of people that have been in the ultra running community and the trail running community for so long, they really came out of that whole ride and tie scene. So that was an interesting thing that I didn't know about back then. Yeah. yeah and it was a very big uh, deal. Like in 1983, I think there was um, there was 200 and 240 people and 240 horses up in Eureka mm. um, up on the northern coast there. And uh, I mean, it was it was big. 
you know, there's prize money. Levi Strauss was the title sponsor. And oh, sure. Yeah. So there's, there is definitely people around that are getting a little bit long in the tooth, but um, that's, <laughs> there's, there's lots of them around. Yeah. Well, it certainly seems like it launched you into a, into a really good running career. I mean, I was looking through your ultra sign up. Um, you know, I saw that as a teenager, I mean, you were taking on your first 50 K your first 50 miler, all of that. And how did, you know, how did that evolve? I mean, you were on cross country team, uh, were your peers, were other friends of yours starting to get into those distances? Like, how did you decide to kind of make that jump? Well, um, I, I started as a sophomore and I found that the longer I did, longer I raced, the better I did. And so positive reinforcement, right? So um, I would run the mile and two mile during track and then do cross country, which I enjoyed cross country better, but you know, all the friends and everything were doing track. So we just did track also. Um, So it was uh, then on the weekends I would go and we, as a group, we had a, I think a pretty unique situation uh, in our high school for track and cross countries, we would go places <clears throat> and do runs and, and do 10 Ks or half marathons or whatever. So um, we started doing that. And I, I just kept signing up for longer and longer races. And I, because I would do better and better. And that's how I ended up, you know, doing hundreds <laughs> is, is they were longer. And if it's hotter or more, more, uh, you know, rough um, elevation gain, technical footing, um, colder, rainier, all of those things, um, you know, help, help me get faster than the next guy for some mm. reason. <laughs> did you, did you then, yeah. Did you seek out those, those difficulties, uh, out there in a race situation or training, or, I mean, did you try to put yourself into as much kind of physical discomfort as you could to, to make yourself even harder to, or, or yeah, like, Harder to catch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, the I I did the first Angels Crest 100, so um, mm. that was I think 86, um, and uh, I didn't really you know do it knowingly, I don't think. So um, I just wanted to go finish 100, and um, so that was the actual first one, um, and it was pretty hard back then. Now I I think it's similar, but they've changed the course a bit. So. Um, but yeah, it's, um, I, th- I think more recently, maybe the last 10 years, you know, I've just started gravitating um, towards like UTMB and uh, I was signed up for the Tour de Jean race. And mm. um, um, I, yeah, it's just, uh, I, th- I think also as I've gotten older, you know, from about 48 to present day, which is I'm 55, um, I want them even longer and even harder because I'm not as fast as I was back then. Mm. Um, so in 2010, I ran Western States. I was 46 and I ran a 1735, um, but I haven't been able to go, you know, that fast anymore. So <laughs> you're still in the 21 hour range though, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah. It's, it's 2021. Yeah. Yeah. So very impressive. Depending. Though. Uh, I mean, to me, very impressive for sure. Mm-hmm. I'm 53, so I would aspire to that by <laughs> any stretch. Yep, everything's relative, and that's yeah. that's that's the uh, that's a great thing. Is you know, you just gotta. I, I think that was part of the mental shift of of being able to run in the top 10 or top three. Um, and as I got older, I, I it was hard to wrap my head around it, 
and be okay with it, mm -hmm. um, doing as the best you can and so on. And that's the great thing about age groups is it gives you a little carrot there. Yeah. Well, I noticed in some of the races you listed that still, I mean, you're hitting the, the 50 age group, you know, first place in the 50 age group, 50 plus age group or whatever. Um, so that's still, as you said, like that's something to still aspire to. I mean, even if yeah. you're not in the top 10 and you've got the age groups, which is great. And I think all of us as, you know, aging runners, whoever we are can, mm -hmm. uh, can identify with that. It's still something, yeah, to motivate you to get out there. Yeah, definitely. That's great. So I did see, the, uh, you know, you said you mentioned Angeles Crest. That was your first hundred. And then after that, uh, you did your first Western States in your early 20s, I think, in 1987. Yep. I think I was 21. Yeah. So that's also, to me, a, a great a great accomplishment. There aren't a ton of younger runners, I don't think, these days. I mean, from just anecdotally, but anyone can correct me if I'm wrong. It does seem like a lot of ultra runners tend to be getting, you know, more into like their late twenties, thirties, forties, and fifties and sixties, obviously. Um, but what was it like being sort of like a younger runner back then? And especially at a time when the race perhaps wasn't as popular as it is now, how would you compare and contrast, you know, that experience back then to some of your later finishes at Western States? Um, when I first started doing it, obviously it was, it was just to get see if you could get through it and everything was so new and we didn't have gels and um you know you didn't have the information sharing that you have now uh for people so the toolbox that that people have is, is huge it's full of all this stuff right mm -hmm. um back then you know we were running i had i didn't even have water bottle handles i made them out of duct tape and um one of my early riding type partners george hall and a lot of people know this guy he still runs in um jean cutoffs and a pendleton <laughs> plaid shirt and and he's had two hip hip replacements but he's at quad dipsy all the time every year. And, um, you know, he would run with Aunt Jemima bottles because, you know, that's what he could afford. So, um, there's definitely more, more to, uh, um, to work with nowadays. And so there's a, you know, a, a bigger learning curve or a quicker learning curve. Um, as, as far as the actual event, um, you know, there wasn't as many people obviously back then, um, doing it and, but it's a still, <clears throat> it's, still the same type of community, um, you know, and that's what people love about, about ultra running and stuff. So, uh, yeah, it's, it hasn't changed all that much. I think that, um, um, from an age perspective, um, when you're young and, and out there running, I, I liked to lead and because it made me excited. I, I love to go out there. So a lot of times I would go out way too fast and obviously just, completely crumble um, until I got in shape. And if I did it enough, like every two weeks or every three weeks, I'd run a 50. Eventually it was like speed work and I would get in good enough shape. And then I could actually hold on to the, to the end and, and do well. Um, so I, I think, uh, I don't know, when you get older, you just kind of slow down a little bit and try and be a little bit more analytical about it. I know that I've, I've put way more focus and uh, just focus, I guess, is the best word and effort into 
you know, running the last few years than I ever did before from a nutritional standpoint. And like we talked about the, the toolbox, I mean, there's IV therapy, hydrotherapy. I went and saw my physio once a week, you know, uh, just to keep everything balanced and straight and mechanically moving because as you load load it, regardless of your age, as you start loading the miles on and, and the intensity and so on, it, um, things start, you know, wavering or breaking. And if you, you don't have everything working right, then, then you're injured. And that's a big problem, obviously for a lot of people, stomach or it's injury. So yeah, it's important to keep all that balanced. Yeah. That's, that's the reason I'm heading into monsters every week at this point. (laughs) Yeah. Once a week. Yeah. What, uh, what kind of mileage, uh, did you used to do and how does that compare to now? Well, see, that was a problem is when I was 20, I wouldn't run. I, I would, I would go out and run, you know, faster, but six or eight miles, it wasn't enough. You know, I wouldn't do the longer training runs and so on. And so, um, I think that was, that was something that, uh, became evident. And, and of course your, your attention span is a lot shorter. Uh, I did a lot of rock climbing in, um, high school and, and college, um, uh, up in Yosemite, we did a lot of uh, routes up El Cap, and you mentioned uh, some of the other mountaineering uh, stuff. So it was hard to stay focused on one thing as well, because I'd be out doing riding ties and endurance rides and and climbing. So it was good cross training, though. Yeah, oh, for sure. Well, speaking of focus, switching gears a little here, I think we want to. Everybody wants to hear all about the Western States 200, and uh, I know I do. How much focus did you have to have to pull this off? And we'll we'll dig into this, but just as a general question, starting from the point when you started to plan this, your first attempt, which you did DNF, further dates that had to get pushed out due to wildfires and all kinds of other issues with forest closures, and then finally picking like the last weekend of October to do this thing, and then wouldn't you know it? Like, I think a week later, the Sierra started getting snow on it. So, I mean, you got in there right under the wire. I can't even imagine how much motivation and planning and just mental fortitude it took to kind of get this executed. Can you just give us a high level view of that? Well, there is a lot of uh, coordination um, with, with crew and and pacers and um, you know, covering everything, your food and your drink and so on. Fortunately, I know the trail really well. I've ridden it um, two or three times on horseback. I've done um, 12 finishes for Western States. And um, so I know every bit of it. So that helped a ton as opposed to going to an area like maybe the John Muir trail or something like that and trying to do something over there. It's, it's a lot different. Um, it was, uh, I don't, I don't think it was all that difficult to, to conceive of so much the first time. And then I'd be out running as it got closer and closer. I go, I can't believe I got myself into this. And because now I got all these wheels turning, you know, with friends and family and, and so on. Um, but um, it was uh, harder once I, I didn't finish um, and it was completely my fault, but, but I didn't finish that first attempt. It was actually harder to string and maintain the fitness level that I was at, um, you know, and keep kicking the can down the road. Um, that was, that was hard. It wasn't hard from a, um, 
motivation standpoint, but it was it was difficult from uh, um, just trying to keep at that peak level. So I even when the, the air got really bad, I was driving to Vacaville or to uh, Santa Rosa to run. Um, we went up and my wife was doing a uh, endurance ride in Oregon. So we went like four or five days earlier to the coast and, and, and trained out there and then went up and she did a ride and, and came back. Um, so you were, and, and I even went into, I got a gym membership locally and um, went and did like four or five days on the treadmill just to keep the, you know, the running going. And then I started feeling a little like, I don't know if my legs are going to be good for downhill. You know, there's 40,000 feet of downhill. Um, so I was a little worried about that. So I think stringing it from, you know, uh, delay to delay was probably the hardest part. I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Just having that uncertainty. I mean, there was the air quality and then they started closing the forest and then there were restrictions on the forest and then some things reopened and not other things didn't. I mean, it just, it has to play with your mind, I would think. And like you said, I mean, maintaining that fitness level, I know personally, I didn't yeah. run for probably 10 days at one point because the air quality yeah. was just terrible. Um, yeah. So, I mean, kudos to you for just sticking it out and just getting through that period. That's, that's incredible. And, and I didn't run if I kind of had in my brain, uh, if it was yellow, you know, that moderate, I would, I would run if it was lower, moderate, but once it hit the one above that, I think it was orange or something. Mm. I, that's when I started looking for other places. I'd drive up to Donner and run, or I was, I had it bookmarked. I was watching that air quality control <laughs> everywhere going, where in California can I go run? Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. That might be a nice meta app that someone should create, which is <laughs> where can I run in California.com? Right. <laughs> it just yeah. shows you where the lowest uh, concentrations are or something like that. Yeah. So incredible. Um, so I, I have a quote here from you uh, that I think also mm. kind of describes some of what you went through and it was, and, and somewhat of what we've been talking to about, and that is the Sierra did not give up this FKT easily. And all of this stuff kind of fits into that. I mean, obviously the effort itself, but just all of this stuff leading up to it in a way, mother nature is kind of like, hey, it's on my timeline. <laughs> Yep. You know, you have to be patient. Um, and it sounds like you were uh, for sure. And I guess uh, just backing up too. I mean, one of the things that we've been interested in is, is sort of where did you, you know, come up with this? Obviously you had other races planned. They got canceled. Had this been in your mind previously to this year or was this just no. out of the blue? Like, yeah, okay. <laughs> I want to check this thing out because I know this trail so well. Yeah, no, it, it wasn't. I never even thought about it. Um, I was signed up for uh, Western States for this um, the year, this year, 2020, and then Tour de Jean in Italy, which is a, a, a pretty big matzo ball as well. Um, and then when those two got canceled, um, we were just looking for something to do, which I'm silver lining, right? So we started looking at um, what areas might might make sense to do, you know, just a, a long outing. So John Muir came up and then the forest was, they were, you know, telling people not, don't come and so on. Then you got permit issues there. And then we're looking at a couple of other areas. And then a friend of mine, Paul Terranova and I were kind of uh, talking back and forth and he, he was interested in doing it too. Um, it just didn't sync up. Um, and cause he was doing the collegiate loop 
uh, in Colorado. And um, he DNF'd at that one too. So he had an, an, a redo <laughs> about four, four weeks later as well. So we were both commiserating a little bit there. Um, but yeah, it was not on the radar. No, but you found it and you started planning it. And yep. I'm assuming reached out to a number of people. What was the response like once you started you know, kind of bringing the other people into this and asking for help and crewing and pacing all that. Yeah, I, uh, I don't know. A, a lot of, a lot of my friends, uh, that, um, I've known for a long time. So they already kind of know that I'm out on the, uh, outer fringes of, um, some of the adventures and so on. And, and so I, they didn't, uh, they didn't think anything. They just said, we'll be there. I'm in, you know, and, and, uh, Kent was one of the first, uh, first ones <laughs> that I texted and I go, what do you think about this? He goes, well, eh, I'm in. So yeah, let's yeah, hear from kind of like that. Every, everybody jumped on. So. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, Dan, Dan had been poking around at some different ideas and we talked about John Muir and we talked about Western States and maybe some other things too. Um, but yeah, it's exciting, right? It's as, as a crew, you're looking at it going, you know, like I've never been along some of those routes on the backside of John Muir. That would have been kind of fun. Um, but we know Western States really well. And so, you know, crewed it any number of times and it was really easy to just start, start the planning for it and know that whatever the unknowns were that were coming, that we'd be able to figure them out, that we'd be working from kind of a known, a known set on the trail and, what the hours were and what the, the splits were and what, what he'd need as we were going mm. through. Absolutely. And and for somebody that has done the race 12 times, you must, and, and been on the trail, you know, numerous times, just know pretty much every inch of that trail, which like you were saying before, I mean, has got to help you so much versus going somewhere completely unknown, not really knowing the terrain or any of the in- intricacies of the trail or whatever. I mean, this is, this is your backyard. You know, this thing cold. <laughs> Yes, I've been over it a lot. Um, and of course, I, I live in Auburn, so I trained on, on it as well. Um, and I wanted to run it um, from Auburn to Olympic Valley and back to Auburn um, rather than the other way around. One is I wanted to finish here, but um, I also, after the first attempt, um, the section from Robins, Robinson to Olympic Valley and back to Robinson, that 60 miles and where it comes into play it, throughout the 200 from mile uh, 70 to 130. Um, and the technical aspect of the trail was a little bit higher up, a little bit more remote. Um, it, it was definitely the crux of it. Um, it would be considerably easier to, to do it the other way, go from Squaw Valley to to Auburn and back up, but this is the way we chose to do it. Um, and I ran every inch of the actual race course. So the last time I ran it was in 2019, uh, and I used that modern day um, route, um, meaning that the trip through um, Auburn Lake Trails to the aid station, because there's a couple other trails you cut off like half mile here or there or whatever. Hmm. Um, so there was that. And also up by Miller's defeat, there's a little single track on the right for about a mile or so. And so I was, uh, I felt that I wanted to do it right, do it exactly like the, like the race every step of the way. And, um, so 
that's that's what we did yeah yeah great let's bring greg on for a sec i just want to find out from him what his thoughts were when he got that text or that call or that message <laughs> yeah um so actually uh dan and i live probably about a quarter mile apart but we hadn't really crossed paths aside from being out on the trails a few times um and actually it was my neighbor who lives one house over who just kind of shouted at me she was walking her horse back to her house um asked if I wanted to help Dan out with this. And I said, yeah, sure, I'm happy to. Um, immediately, I realized I was not sure how much I committed to in terms of helping out. But, you know, I figured we'd figure that out. And it was a, it was a cool way to uh, spend some time out on the trail. So it uh, it was a little bit fortuitous how it came to be. But, um, yeah, it was probably, you know, I think I'd talked to my neighbor. And then probably a week or two later, I was out running 30 miles with him. And then a couple of weeks after that, we you know, did 50 miles as a part of this. So it was, uh, it all unfolded pretty quickly. Yeah. Such a cool experience. <laughs> That's great. So Dan, um, let's talk about the first attempt real quick. Uh, I did read the, the interview that you did with the, the newspaper afterwards. It sounded like there were some sleep related issues, things like that. Is there, what were the specifics, I guess, of, of what uh, caused you to, to end that attempt? Uh, I guess we'd uh, quickly just say it was a mental lapse, <laughs> a lapse in judgment on my part. Um, there was really no reason uh, to end it. Um, my stomach was great. My legs were really good. Um, downhill legs were good. Um, I, you know, you can't, you, when you're out there, it's, uh, I had a little rough rough time around Red Star the first time. Um, I just seemed, I felt like I was going very slow from Duncan mile uh, 75 to Red Star Ridge mile 84 and a half. And um, as it turns out, it wasn't that bad for the uphill and for the altitude, but but for the technical trail and so on, it wasn't as bad. But you know, when, you're, when your brains, it, it doesn't always, work with you sometimes it's working against you right and so um i think uh bob crowley actually we talked had a little debrief after it and he said you know it sounds like you were you were you were building a case against yourself and all of the evidence had nothing to do with anything there was there was no reason why you know you but you were thinking that these are valid issues and concerns so um yeah so i i went up I, I went to sleep at Red Star and I slept for five hours. I slept for three hours and then, but we talked about it for an hour on the front end and we talked about it on the back end. So I got in around 2.30 and, and left uh, at 7.20 the next morning. So I essentially took a three hour nap. Um, didn't eat a ton, but I go, you know what? I'm, I'm gonna try and keep going. Um, but I had in my mind already pulled out. But then when I woke up, I go, there's no reason for me to stop. So I kept going, ran a good split up and over the summit down to, um, to Olympic Valley and, and turned around and came back. And then, um, you know, I, 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 uh, it's just one of those things. You just, there was no real reason why. I pulled out. So um, even, you know, as you get older, you still, uh, one of my friends up the street goes, you, you, you pulled out. Why? And I'm just like, oh, <laughs> because, you know, you think you got enough experience to handle it. Right. But 
you're it's a different different thing going that that far so oh yeah that was so i ended up pulling out at about my 125 mm-hmm. yeah did you immediately yep. not immediately yep. but no. how immediately did you decide <laughs> this is it like i'm doing i'm going back for this thing it was I think I was already thinking about it later that evening. And by the next morning, I already knew I'd made a a mistake. Um, And every day since that time that I then rescheduled and then tried to go in September, um, I I had thought about it. So I knew I made a, a mistake. Yeah, but you you had some redemption. So uh, so that was definitely a good thing. Motivation. Absolutely. Um, yeah, we talked about the delays and you know the, the wildfires, the forest closures and all that. I mean, were you still trying to figure out the date specifically and just kind of having to wait? Or did you eventually decide, okay, we're just going to go for it last, I think it was the last weekend of, of October? Or, or was that date very much in flux for a while? Um, I had... Uh, rescheduled it for the the 11th with an alternate to the 18th, I think, of September. And um, then everything just went to hell with the air quality and the forest actually closed and and all these things. So um, right after that, I said, okay, obviously these forest fires keep happening and and it's going to be a little while. So I said, rather than kick the can down the road just a, a week or two, let's go to a reasonable time, which is the end of October. And so that hopefully would give everybody a, a chance to, to get the fires under control and so on, and the air to get better and so on. So yeah, we just did it for then. And I, I sent it back out uh, to everybody and says, uh, what do you think? And they said the same thing. <laughs> they said, we're in. <laughs> so it was uh, very enthusiastic and yeah. What was the it seems like you know? Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Mike. Seems like at this time of the year, it's dicey. You get, you get near the end of October, picking races. I know Rob Myers was up there, and he had some sleet and snow and challenges when he did. Uh, so you can get some really unusual weather at this time of year. So it definitely is, you're. It's like the end of the line. If you didn't do it now, it would it would be tough to try to get it done at all this year, huh? Yeah, true. Um, I typically though um, mid October we get a rain or a sprinkle or a snow, and then it backs off for a little bit. Not always, but but most of the time. So um, I'm okay. I've done a lot of adventure racing in in the snow in Switzerland, Sweden, different locations, New Zealand, and so I I'm very I feel okay moving in the snow. And of course, I knew the trails, so I wasn't worried about that. So even if when we got this little bit of snow here. I still would have been okay with that. It's just a little chillier. Well, it was it was quite cold over the summit anyway. Um, this attempt, it was it had to have been single digits because down in the valley it was twenty. Wow. So when I when I got there, so yeah, so it's okay. The I was okay with it. If it was not perfect weather. It turned out though that it was was just a little chilly over the top there and everything else was just awesome weather. Um, the first attempt, uh, I, I was watching the uh, river flow out of Oxbow and I have a friend, um, Tom Johnson, who is tied in uh, with some of that stuff. So we were talking about the flows and how long it takes for water to get down from Oxbow to the river crossing. And um, he, uh, he sent me a couple of links and um, 
it looked all really good. And I went out there and checked it out about the same time a couple of days earlier. And uh, it it uh, it looked great. So um, then I got there at about eight thirty in the morning, and it was roaring. It, well, it was it was at twelve hundred, so that was a lot more than I had expected. So I just swam across. I just went up river a little bit. There's a very large pool there, and um, went up and and swam across. My wife was on the other side. Um, she had a throw rope and so on, but. Um, yeah, I just took a couple minutes to come from a, you know, a very warm <laughs> state of running, and and also it was probably 85 degrees at that point uh, at 8:30 in the morning, and got wet, and then got across, so I wouldn't hyperventilate and <laughs> sink Jeez. like a stone. Wow! Did, so um... that was yeah, that was okay. And then the second time, of course, we didn't get to give it a go on the way back, but uh, the second attempt. Um, it was about waist deep, so you could pick your way across. I had a big stick and um yeah that's better yeah i mean had you considered using a, a boat or any a raft or anything or had, had you always thought like i'll just try it to just get across myself yeah i i wanted it under my own power i just didn't want to i just wanted it more organic I, if if you got to swim you got to swim you know it's not yep. that big of a deal and um so yeah no i i didn't want to use a boat yeah or string a line across or something i is okay. I think I did see a picture of you maybe with like a, a random stick or something like yeah. that that you found. <laughs> so, yeah. That's, yeah. That's just or, for stability. You know? Yeah, sure. That's organic. So <laughs> that works. <Yeah. laughs> that's good. True. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that's probably going to be your, for anybody that would try this, I mean, that's got to be the, the, the hardest part or not, one of not the hardest, but that, that, that's got to cause some concern, like getting across the river. Cause as we all know, during Western States, I mean, you're either on the line or they're going to ferry you across on a boat, depending on the flow. And, you know, of course the time of year matters and the release mm -hmm. schedules and all that stuff. So luckily you hit it just right. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was fine. Yeah. So yeah, we talked about the weather. It sounded like that wasn't such a huge issue for you, luckily. Um, and it sounds like, yeah, you would have been fine with snow, micro spikes or something like that would have been fine. Um, so that, you know, timing wise, this all worked out really well. Um, mm -hmm. What types of low points did you hit during the second attempt, if any? Were there any issues at all, just mentally, physically or, or anything? Um. I mean, there's always those, it seems like your body, what I've, I've run about, I think 42 or so hundred milers, they were all trail hundreds. Um, and there's a certain way that your body recovers, you know, from that. Um, and it, there's a certain way, it seems how your body kind of get, you get as far as you can, as comfortable as you can. And then whether you're first or last, everybody's got to still make it that last 30 miles, you know, and it's uncomfortable. So during this, uh, attempt, um, it got uncomfortable around 75 or 85 miles, but not that bad. And then it just stayed that way. It didn't get worse. You know, I didn't, I was, I didn't have anything going on. It was just a uncomfortable, you know, it's, it's just a leg weary type of thing. Um, uh, on this, on the second attempt, I slept, we added it up. I think it was a total of three hours. So, um, but they were broken up into like 20 minute 
um, increments, 20 or I think I did one 45 minute, um, you know, you get in, you eat as much as you can, get warm, sleep real quick, and then get going. Um, and, but even if you don't actually sleep, um, you're, you're resting yourself, obviously legs are up and so on, but you've also checked out with your eyes, you know, your eye, as you know, as a trail runner yourself, um, you're, you're always constantly watching the ground and my nemesis, I, I fortunately don't have a lot of injuries and, or haven't had a lot of injuries over the years. Um, but the one that I do have that I'm really careful of is rolling my ankle. I did it when I was 15, just on some piece of asphalt on a road. And ever since then, it's it's been an issue. So during the trail uh, races, I'm always really hypersensitive about foot placement. And so um, it was nice to just close your eyes and just uh, rest them just a little bit because they're going 90 miles an hour, uh, you know, nonstop every time you're going forward. So, um, so yeah, I, I think, um, you know, it was uncomfortable, but at the same time, it got pretty, pretty even. I don't know, maybe uh, Kent um, uh, paced me through, we, we did pretty slow too, because it was through the canyons through Swinging Bridge. Uh, it was Kent and then um, from Olympic Valley to about last chance, um, Greg paced me. So that was a really long stretch. Um, we'd go to, we'd get to like uh, Robinson. He'd go, well, I'll, I'll keep going with you. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> you know, it's, it's not breakneck speed or anything, but we were kept going. And uh, um, so it, there was, you know, you had, you had, people around, which really help. And, um, you know, you're looking forward to getting the goodies and the drinks at the next checkpoint. That was, uh, um, a, a high motivator, um, and picking up your next pacer, you know, too. So For sure. yeah, not, not a lot of real low points that I can imagine or think back and imagine. I'm still kind of processing it too. It's, mm. um, you know, you think back about, the emotional aspects of it and then the physical and the mental and all these things. And it's, it's a, uh, it's a, it's a great experience. Yeah. yeah. I mean, two weeks, it's not that far out. So it, it takes a little while, I'm sure yeah. just to get, yeah. get, get that all processed. I did want to bring Kent uh, back in and then Greg after that, um, just to get that on the ground. Uh, yeah. Experience what, what it was like, what, what you saw Dan going through, what he was, what his state was and all that. So uh, I only did uh, the section from last chance through to devil's thumb, which I had not ever been on before. Um, and normally like if Dan's, you know, serious about something, there's no way I can keep up. So uh, with 150 miles in his legs, I was able to sort of work through <laughs> that climb with him. Okay. It was really fun. It was, you know, it's like I used to adventure race too. I love being out in the middle of the night. Um, it was really fun kind of working through that Canyon and, uh, you know, just kind of going, going through that section with him. It was a good place to be. So cool. And how was, how was he going up devil's thumb? <laughs> no, really well. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's, I mean, uh, I've, I've seen him quite a few times in, in those last kind of 10, five, 10 miles of Western States. And, uh, he was in, in better shape this time. Like just, you know, just that, that sort of titrating of effort through this whole thing. He was, he was managing it quite well. Oh, that's impressive. 
Greg, I just wanted to get, yeah, your, your experience there. I mean, you were a long stretch there, 50 miles that, uh, that had to be a good effort. Yeah, it was, uh, I, it was actually a really enjoyable experience. I mean, Dan was, Dan was moving great for, for the vast majority of the time that, that I had him. Um, I'd say that the, the most, um, I'd say unique part of that was probably the very start because we, uh, we had gotten up to Olympic Valley and were, following the Garmin tracker that he had on and he'd been moving pretty consistently, you know, three, four miles an hour. Um, except that that spot right before you kind of come up to immigrant, you're starting to get up pretty high. The footing's a little bit treacherous and it was also like, you know, four or five in the morning. Um, so it was also super dark at the time. And we kind of watched his, his tracker slow to, to a, you know, what was something less than a walk at that point. And we weren't sure if it was a tracker malfunctioning or if he had stopped and then it started to pick up and then it slowed again. Um, so I actually ended up going up to meet him up at the, uh, at the base of Immigrant to start because we, we weren't sure if he needed help or anything like that. I brought some soup up to him, um, but he is coming down, coming down Immigrant, moving pretty well. Um, and you know, from there, after he got some, some rest and we started back uh, towards, towards Robinson, um, things moved along pretty well. Uh, like we said, we had some great weather. Um, the, the weather really wasn't a factor probably outside of that, that first and guess uh, maybe less so the second night because you're down at a slightly lower elevation. Um, but aside from that, I, I think it was uh, really just consistent progress the whole way through, which was was awesome. I, I feel a little bit nervous sometimes about taking directional guidance from somebody who's got, you know, 150 miles and 24 plus hours under their belt. But at this point in time, he was definitely the expert on the course. So um, I had to rely on him a little bit for that. But otherwise, it, it was great. Well, and if I can jump in, Greg and I, we we uh, we had been together this whole time. We went through Robinson the second time, so we're at 130 miles, and I think we took like, I don't know if we took a break there or not, but I think so. Mm -hmm. No. Um, uh, anyway, so we got our resupplied um, at the rig there and and left, and we, I was in great spirits. And so we, we were walking and we were talking and I don't talk a lot when I run, but, um, at this point we were talking. And so we start down that gravel road towards, uh, Miller's defeat. And again, I, I know the trail really well, but it's a very wide, boring trail, but it's not, not very long. And so, um, it goes, it goes down for about a mile and then it crosses a creek. It's got a big hairpin, crosses a creek, and then goes about three quarters of a mile and then takes a little spur trail that leads over to the road that heads to Miller's Defeat. And uh, we were chitting and, and, and talking and, and he's like, yeah, he's looking at his, at his Garmin and, and he's going, yeah, we're, we're doing 10, we're doing 11 minute pace, da, da, da. These are these are good. And... <laughs> we the creek wasn't running because it was late in the year otherwise we would have known that we went across it but i didn't catch it and before long i go this doesn't seem right it didn't feel right and we had shot right past that little spur uh trail and then uh we started uh you know talking about it and trying to determine and so he's got this watch and and we're looking at literally the size of a quarter and he's got this topo on it he's going i see them and he's zooming in <laughs> and I, I was just cracking up of course it was serious at the time because we're losing time we're not moving forward right so um i saw a um about 
a mile, a little less than a mile past the wrong turn, I saw a gate that I didn't recognize during the race on the right-hand side. And immediately I looked up and I saw a little bald mountain. I went, uh-oh, we got to go back. And so we started running back and uh, he said something about, he goes, I didn't see that trail when we were coming down and I didn't think much about it. And I went another hundred yards. I go, no, 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 that's the trail. We must have already crossed the creek and that's the little spur trail. So turns out I went back on the uh, Garmin and figured out that it was 26 minutes. Ooh. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> 26 minutes. So there's some opportunity right there. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but I mean, that's a testament yeah, that to your knowledge of the trail and how, you know, you know, every inch of that thing and just seeing something in a different location just triggered that for you, which is yeah. great. And we were, we were talking, we were in really good spirits and I was feeling good and we were running. So you're traveling and it was smooth, you know, so that smooth dirt road. So you're actually making pretty good time. Mm. So we got farther than we, we thought. So yeah. anyway, Hey, yeah. you know, it's all part One of the of experience. Yeah. yeah, it is. Time does not stop. Well, so let's, let's fast forward. Uh, and one of the things that I'm really interested in knowing is what's that feeling like when you're, let's say, I don't know, were you running up Roby or walking at that point? And that last yeah. few miles coming down into the stadium. And if I'm not mistaken, meeting your mother at the finish line, like what was that emotion like going through all that? Well, the last, the last 20 miles from Greengate in, obviously I, that's across the river. I'm very familiar with, um, I get a lot of drop-offs and different thing, things like that out, out at third gate and I run home. And so I'm very familiar with that. Um, most of that, um, it was actually pretty warm. It was about 84 degrees, uh, at that time. It was, I think one of the last couple days, uh, that we had in the eighties. And, um, while I wasn't dehydrated, I was, I was quite well hydrated throughout the whole attempt, um, peeing probably once every hour or two. So fairly regularly, um, it, it was getting warmer and, um, I was running most of, of Wildcat Canyon through ALT Wildcat Canyon down to Browns bar. Um, Kim came out and fortunately, because that's a 20 mile segment, uh, she came out and, uh, gave me some goodies at the new Browns bar aid station down at the Quarry road, which was very well received because at that time I was really starting to get kind of bug-eyed and, and I don't know what was going on. It was probably a low blood sugar for, for that little bit. Um, but I saw her and, and got a smoothie and some other things and, and perked right back up. And, um, so it was, the pace was pretty much running the flats and downhills, um, walking like the hill up to, uh, up to cool to the meadow. Um, that was mostly walked. It was probably 85% walking at that point and 15% uh, running on the flats and little bits I can get going. And then once I got from cool down to no hands, I ran all of that and then ran um, all the railroad grade to the bottom of Roby. Uh, then I walked um, up Roby. No, I wasn't running. And in <laughs> fact, Kent was, Kent caught me out outside of our house uh, because we live here on Roby drive and, and uh, they were there. Um, and 
And he said, you got this, you got this. And I go, I'm not running up this hill. (laughs) For some reason I had in my brain that he was like trying to motivate me to run up the hill. And, and I wasn't having any of it, but we got to the top and and there is about a mile of uh, downhill and kind of flattish stuff. And, and so it was very, it was very special coming in uh, and very unique too, because a friend of mine, Joey, Montoya had uh, unlocked the gates. Um, I hope he doesn't get in trouble for this, but he unlocked that little black gate, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, so no one's in the stadium. And of course we're all used to going in there and there's just chaos and banners and all this stuff. And uh, there was my crew and, and friends and family that had made it possible. And when I say uh, it, when they say it, it takes a village, it, well, it, it does, it takes, a bunch of people to make something like this uh, a reality. And, and so I got onto the track and I remember getting to the other side and rounding the corner and I looked back and nobody was in the stands. There wasn't a soul anywhere. Um, of course, cause it was closed and um, I got onto the straightaway and I, and, and the sun setting behind me, it was a perfect time. It was, it was comfortable and nice. And, and, uh, I see all 14 of my, my crew members socially distanced all the way across Mm -hmm. the, uh, the track and onto the grass. Um, so yeah, it was a super, super special thing. And, and I, I just, uh, yeah, it's one of the highlights of my, my ultra running that I've done for the last 40 years. Yeah. Really Absolutely. Special. Yeah. It just has to be kind of like the culmination of everything you've been working on for so long. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I, I again, the, yeah, you're still processing it. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I'm a very carrot oriented person. Like I, I like, I like training so I can race, you know, I like training so I can do an adventure and, and um, although I, I like running. So in the infamous words of Chuck Jones, you know, back in, I think that was 88 or something running up Bath Road and ABC Sports, they were covering it and uh, uh, they were interviewing him as he was running up Bath Road, leading the race. And he went on to win. And um, one of the, I think it was Marty LaCorey said, said, you know, throughout this whole interview, we've, we've, uh, we've been asking you questions. You've been answering. You have not stopped smiling what's going? And, and, and there was this long pause and he had this like kind of beard and he looked at the camera. He goes, I like running, you know, and I don't know, I guess I like running too. So. I would say that's a fair assessment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have one, one final question before we move to some audience questions here. And that is, um, you know, and you mentioned this in your pre-interview questionnaire, obviously everything you've been doing amazing results over the years and many decades of running coming to this point, doing the 200 mile, uh, FKT here, but you also mentioned that you were born with a a heart defect and you had surgery on that, uh, in 2015, you had a, an aortic valve replacement. Can you talk about what the impact of that has had been prior to the surgery and then post-surgery and, and what kinds of differences you've experienced? Yeah, sure. So I was born with it. So it was something that uh, they were watching when, when, uh, when I was born and over the next three or four or five years, um, they told my mom, okay, uh, yeah, he's not, not to do anything, not, don't let him run around. 
and, and anybody that knows any little boys, you know, all they want to do is run around. So uh, that was a little bit of a challenge. And then as I, as I got six, eight years old, they, um, they had done some more testing and so on and said, okay, well, he has this aortic um, stenosis, aortic insufficiency, which is basically the aortic valve, which is one of the biggest ones. Um, when the valve close, closes, it was deformed. So it would leak back or not seal perfectly. So you're, you're having to repump the same, some of the same blood. It's like seven to 10% or something like that. So um, I didn't know any of this at that time, but they had cleared me to do soccer and baseball and stuff um, through my early, you know, uh, elementary school, et cetera. And, and it seemed okay. But one thing they did says, it say is said someday you're going to have to deal with this. So you want to keep an eye on it. So um, I did kind of um, over the years, but you know, it, it was really hard because I didn't have any symptoms of stuff and kind of forgot about it. And um, we were, I was starting to, uh, I was, I think I was 48, 49. And I thought, well, you know, I'm going to start getting some baseline for, for all the stuff you're supposed to do, you know, prostate and, and all these things, um, as I go into my fifties. And so I went and I saw a local cardiologist here and, um, he says, when was the last time, you know, you've been in and had to echo and so on. And, and I said, oh, it's been a few years. And I thought about it. It's been like 10 or 15 years, probably. So uh, I wasn't keeping keeping up on it uh, quite like I should. And, and so he had identified that, um, you know, it, it, it calcifies, basically. It, it, uh, when your body doesn't like something, it throws calcium at it, and it, it calcifies it to try and immobilize it. Well, unfortunately, you know, we can't have uh, heart valves being immobile. So um, it basically became a risk. So if any of those pieces of calcium uh, were to go free or, or whatever, now it's in your blood, now you get a stroke and all that stuff. So the risk became too great. Um, so he goes, yeah, you're going to have to have this replaced. And I said, hmm, is there any other options? And he, uh, he says, no, I, I don't see it. And so I said, okay. And I went and got a second opinion of course, as, as you should, and um, met a surgeon down at Stanford, and he showed me the CT scan, and he said, see this big mass here? And I said, yes. And he said, um, these are your ribs. See how white they are? And I said, yes. And he said, see this white dot in the middle of your heart? And he goes, that's calcium. That is your heart valve. And that's no bueno. That is not good. So it was pretty clear that I needed to have it replaced. So um, I, uh, I quickly got on his schedule and uh, that was May, or no, that was uh, March, April, and uh, quickly got on his schedule for surgery. Uh, I was in Western States and uh, couldn't run in 2015. Um, so that was a bummer. Um, however, uh, after the surgery, everything went pretty well. And um, uh, I could start running and uh, about three weeks out uh, after the surgery. Um, and then I was out on a little walk run and it dawned on me that I did not have a qualifier for 2016 Western States. 
So I was thinking, oh, I don't have to worry about getting back in shape till next year. No. So in late in early October, I realized this and so quickly said, well, I got Javelina and I got Rio. I got to go do 100 now <laughs> to qualify so I can qualify. So my wife and I um, decided to start, you know, going for it. And so she ran her first hundred during that mm. time and we cruised right through it. I think we ran around 20, 21 hours and had a ball out there and, um, and we qualified. So uh. it was all good <laughs> green light for 2016, but, um, before and after, you know, I was hoping that I would be like super fast afterwards because it would be all efficient and perfect. Um, but it, it wasn't, it, um, it's a, about the same, I believe. So um, no harm, no foul, you know, I'm, I'm good with that. And um, of course the risk is gone. It's, it's been removed from the situation. So the docs, uh, you know, they keep a close eye on you for a while. And um, yeah, so it was, uh, it, it was all good. So uh -huh. I've, I've got, I'm free to go. In fact, I saw my cardiologist uh, just a couple of days before the 200 and he, he says, what you been doing? I go, well, I'm doing this run and <laughs> And I told him I didn't, um, you know, withhold anything, but, uh, he was, he was good with it. He goes, I, I think you, you got it. You're good. Perfect. You're free to go. <laughs> You've got a strong heart. Go. So such, such a great conclusion. <laughs> yeah. I was, and, I was happy and yeah, for sure. And, and getting and, the qualifier in the same year. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, I know we've got some, uh, couple audience questions, I think. Okay. Fire. Hello. Yeah, I certainly do. I have one from Bruce. Um, he said, what would you do differently to improve your time for the uh, 200 attempt? Good question. Um, you know, sleep deprivation is this, this particular distance is at a tricky time because you're at somewhere between 48 plus hours that you know you're going to be out there. Um, so I have gone as much in adventure racing, we've gone as much as about 40, 42 hours and certain things start happening. Um, you make poor decisions and that type of thing um, for navigation. But um, I, I think I would work on my, my uh, sleep management. I think there's um, a better way or different way that I can manage that, uh, where I don't have to sleep quite as much. I didn't take any trail naps out there. Um, but there was probably two little short naps that I did take, uh, at checkpoints where I met my crew that I probably could have done without that were a little close together. So I would probably, um, uh, keep an eye on that a little bit more and, um, but everything else worked pretty well. I, I know I can shave time off if, if I want to. Um, the other, the other thing I will say about sleep deprivation is that, you know, it's not something you can train for. It's something that you experience, you learn from it and you apply it the next event. And so I have a fair amount of experience with sleep deprivation through the adventure racing, the eco challenge and Southern traverse and so on. Um, which is why it surprised me that I had a little bit of trouble or a perception of trouble on the first attempt, on the first attempt. But um, 
I think I would I would uh, tweak my my sleeping a little bit more. And I recently watched a thing that Courtney Dallwater did uh, a, a podcast uh, or video on um, on her attempt of the Colorado Trail, and she's saying the same thing. It's like I, I need to find that gentle perfect medium of, of not sleeping too much, but sleeping enough to keep going faster. And so, yeah, that's, that's some of the fun part, right. Is figuring that out. Cause there is no book on it really. Well, <laughs> there might be a book on it, but, but I don't know. Yeah. Logistics. Yes. And then uh, we talked a lot about your low points and Jennifer wanted to pop on and ask a question on the other side of that. So go ahead, Jennifer. Okay. Hey, Dan. Um, I just want to start by saying, for everybody here who doesn't know it. <laughs> uh, Dan, you're just so impressive. Like I just, I have to say, I will always see you in my mind <laughs> running Western States coming into Robinson, you know, with a t-shirt and one water bottle or maybe two, but just so yourself, like you don't need anything more than you and your brain to get these things accomplished. And it was the same exact way seeing you at Robinson at, you know, coming out and seeing you red star the whole way and just at red star and just the whole way back. So I just want to say you are like the triple C calm, cool, and collected. (laughs) But I was wondering if you could tell me like from someone like yourself, who's done this so much, what were your high points? Like when were you like really jazzed about what you were doing? Um, well, on the first attempt, um, I found myself smiling a lot the first 40 or 50 miles, just smiling. And I just like was happy to be to be out there. Um, and then um, I ran across a bear that kind of charged me. Um, I think what, what had happened, it was right. It was on the first attempt right below Forest Hill on the way out. So it was about mile 36 or so. And um, I I. I was past Dardanelles Creek. And so there was noise behind me and I was coming up and I think I startled two young bears and, and one bailed immediately. And the other one ran straight for me. And I swear, if I had a big can of bear spray on my chest, I wouldn't have been able to even grab it. It was just so fast. And he ran right at me and, and then peeled off literally a three feet before me. But I remember seeing his eyes so so clearly. Um, and I think it's, um, I, I didn't have those things happen on the second one, but it's, it's after that. And it wasn't the adrenaline, I swear. It, it's after that, that those are like the high points when you're really, you, you know, you're out there, even though it was real close to Forest Hill, but you're, you're on your little adventure. And um, it's those things that come up, you know, that, that really, make me happy. And, um, yeah, it was, it was awesome. All, all, even the first attempt was great. It was, it was fun. So yeah, just smiling. No one's around and I'm out there smiling and that was, it happened on the second time too. So it's, it's great when, you know, we've, we've talked to many people over the past few months about that flow state and then just getting into that groove. Uh, Bruce talked about it last night when we talked to him about his Moab experience and it's just, it's special when you're out there and and things are just, are just clicking. So that's absolutely amazing to hear. Um, 
Yeah. So I just want to say on behalf of all of us, you know, thanks a lot for, for joining us and just sharing your insights and just the, the story of this whole thing, how it came together, how you, how you just persevered through the first attempt, the delays, the wildfires, the forest closures, all that. It just really shows kind of the determination uh, that you have for getting this, this huge project done. And uh, we appreciate you taking the time to, to share it with us. Absolutely. Well, there was definitely a little determination. And I think I was so mad at myself after the first one that that helped motivate as well. Um, if anybody does need, there was a guy um, in between my first attempt and, and second, um, there was a guy named uh, Scott Sambucci from uh, Davis. Um, and he was, he had made an attempt as well. He started up at um, Squaw uh, at Olympic Valley, but um but yeah, if anybody needs help, needs questions, or, or, or has has any questions, um, you know, I'd be happy to to help them help you know achieve their uh, their goal too. So perfect. Well, that's an attempt on it. That's the beautiful part of the ultra running community, and I think the FKT kind of ethos is is just you know sharing information and seeing if there are other people out there that want to attempt it and just you know, give them what they need and see how they, see how they go. Uh, so yeah, that's... I'm sure that there will be um, other people that'll do it. Um, if, you know, next year, I don't know what it looks like either. Greg talked briefly about races. Hmm. Um, you know, we've got a, a dream list, right. Of I want to get back to doing runs and races and stuff, but if that doesn't happen the way we wanted it to, there's stuff like this that you can do. And so um, I am, quite certain that it can be done faster. I'm quite certain that, uh, you know, somebody like Jim or somebody's going to come and just <laughs> run it sub 40 hours. Right. You know, but, uh, but Hey, the, the more people that give it a go and it was a great experience. And, and I just am, am really fortunate and thankful, um, to have a, you know, the opportunity to do it, to get, get the weather window, to have all my fam you know, family and friends out there and, you know, they froze their butt off this time before it was hot, but this time it was cold. So yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So, well, the best part is right. you're always going to be the first one that did it. So nobody <laughs> can take that away. And that's, that's a great accomplishment. So right. well, thank you. Thank thanks. you. And thanks to Greg and Kent. We really appreciate you guys joining in and uh, giving you, giving us your perspective on everything. Um, so with that, I think we'll wrap it up tonight. Um, thanks again, everybody, for joining us for another episode of the Mile 99 interview. On behalf of uh, my co-hosts, Mike and Jessica, we thank you for, for coming on and uh, supporting us. We, uh, we love uh, interacting with everybody and, and really look forward to it and bringing on great guests like Dan. And we'll have more. Uh, so keep your uh, eyes peeled on our Facebook page or Instagram. We're going to have announcements for uh, some big things coming up over the next couple of months. So stay tuned for that. We also want to mention again, as Mike said earlier, uh, the Aid Station and Monsters of Massage, big friends of the show. So definitely check them out. If you have anything you need worked out, either on the beer end or on the uh, <laughs> the body side with monsters, I'm sure they can hook you up. So definitely get in touch with them. Uh, we will be scheduling another episode next week. So look for that. And uh, until then, thanks, a lot. thanks again. And we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.